I'll be reading from the book of Esther, chapter 4, starting in verse 4. When Esther's maid and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, <clears throat> she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his south cloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for, her, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The one exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were, were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent for, at, for such a time as this, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise for another, from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The word of the Lord. What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I've been going for about a month. Uh, yes, celebrating. Three people are really excited about that. Uh, I don't know if they're excited that I was gone or excited that I'm back. Um, but uh, my wife gave birth to our youngest child, Josiah, a month ago. And I am uh, really glad to be back and super grateful for just the love and the care of the community. Uh, people were bringing my food uh, to the crib, and if you just want to try a whole new variety of foods, you should have a kid or adopt or something like that, and then people from the community would just uh, flood you with new food. Uh, so grateful for the support, uh, and I'm also really grateful uh, for the love and support shown to my family uh, after we had a little health scare with my dad a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he is back. My amen corner is back in the building. For me as a pastor, and this might be one of the reasons I got into ministry, it is way easier for me to give help and to give advice than it is for me to receive help. And uh, being in a, in a position both with paternity leave and the health care with my dad, I've had to receive from the community, and I am so grateful, so, so, so grateful to all of you. I feel honored and blessed to, to be a pastor here, grateful for your prayers, your support, and your love uh, for us. 
Uh, I'm really grateful also to be back uh, teaching. Uh, I've been really excited. My wife is happy that I just could stop talking her head off all day, and I get a chance to process this with other people. Um, uh, we're in this series called uh, True and Better, Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And we're hoping, we're, we're hoping to zoom out a little bit from the story of Scripture and understand the big picture. As we said a couple of weeks ago, it's really hard to appreciate something if you are standing right up on it. So what we're hoping to do in this series is to back up a little bit and see what these words in Scripture mean and see what the whole story is really about. Uh, True fact, the Bible is not just a random collection of stories with different characters all saying different things that that are there to give us a lesson on how to live, but rather it's a story of God's redemption played out in the entire story of Scripture, and it's all pointing toward Jesus. Jesus says as much in Luke 24, and it's a scripture that we'll be reading over and over and over again uh, as we embark in this series. Um, Jesus is on the road talking with some people, and it says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Now, when this book was written, there was no New Testament. The New Testament didn't come, or the, the Bible didn't get canonized into having the Old Testament and New Testament for over 100 years uh, before, um, uh, after, when, when this was said, uh, the Old Testament was what people understood to be the Scriptures. So when it says Jesus spoke about concerning himself in all of the Scriptures, he was basically saying the story from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets and everything, it's all telling the story about me. Now, either Jesus is a megalomaniac and he is absolutely obsessed with himself, or he really is the Lord of all, and it's really all pointing in one direction. So Portia just read the story of Esther, and the story of Esther is a story that gives us an amazing description of what Jesus is. These stories in the Old Testament are meant to foreshadow or to show us what, uh, give us a, a better picture of understanding who Christ is and who we are as a result. So here's what's going on in the book of Esther. Let me catch you guys up. Uh, it starts out by giving us the history of what's going on at that time, and it gives us a description of this guy named King Ahasuerus. Uh, King Xerxes, depending on what translation you read. And this guy, King Xerxes, was uh, a boss. He was a king of Persia, and they had property stretching all the way from India to Africa. And for six months straight, just to floss on cats, he held feasts. And day after day after day, uh, he had uh, parties and feasts. And as uh, the young kids will say, it was a lituation for six months straight. Scripture says uh, that one day he was in high spirits from wine. I like that description. Some of you guys know what that feels like. And uh, he calls his wife, Queen Vashti, to come wearing her royal crown. Now, I just found this out this week. It's pretty interesting. Uh, Most commentators agree that when it says that uh, King Xerxes called for his wife to come in her royal crown, he was calling for her to just come in her royal crown. Uh, This guy was a pig, and he was trying to parade her off to all of his friends since he was twisted, and he calls for her to come naked. Queen Vashti was a woman of integrity. She says no, and the king uh, became enraged and kicked her out of the throne. And then when he calmed down a little bit, they said, hey, we need to start a search for a new wife. So they did uh, a search, almost like The Bachelor, uh, except he might kill you. That's like a little twist. Uh, (laughs) You would laugh at his jokes if you thought he might kill you. 
Uh, and for a year straight, they brought in different women to the king. And for a year straight, they got beauty treatments. A year straight of deep conditioning, uh, nails did, hair did, everything did for a year straight. And they brought Esther in front of the king. The Bible tells us that Esther was beautiful. And when he saw her, that he thought that she was more beautiful than anyone else. And he took her to be his wife. Now, Esther is living good. She is uh, living in the prime of her life, living in a castle, and life is good. Until one day, uh, there's a guy named Haman who was brought up to be almost like the prime minister of, uh, of the land, and he was the king's right-hand man. And Haman had been elevated and honored, and when he would walk through the streets, everybody would bow down and pay respect, except for this one guy, Esther's cousin, uh, a guy named Mordecai. Haman became so mad that Mordecai refused to bow down and honor him that Haman came out with a plan to not just kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people. See, nobody knew that Esther was a Jew at the time. So Haman goes to the king and says, King, these Jews, man, they're not putting no respect on your name. They have their own customs, their own traditions. They're separate, and I think it would be in the king's best honor if we got rid of them. The king takes off his signet ring stamps it into law, signed, sealed, and delivered, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, now have a death sentence hanging over their head. As a result, everybody finds out, and Mordecai and others go into mourning, and they're fasting. Mordecai gets word to Esther, saying, Esther, quite honestly, this is our last hope. There is a sentence over our heads, and we need you to go to the king and ask the king for mercy. We need you to convince the king to remove the death sentence from over us so that we can live. One big problem, as Esther says in verse 4 and 11, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned before the king for the last 30 days. Esther, even though she was his wife, she could not just walk up to the king uh, on her own accord. And she knew that by going to the king, she was risking her life. Now, she had a couple of options. She probably could have thought to herself, I'm the queen. He thinks I'm fine. He's really not going to hurt me, even if he does harm other people. Or she can risk her life and go on behalf of the entire people stand before the king, and ask for their judgment to be removed. In an act of bravery, uh, the climax of this chapter comes in, 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 chapter, in verse 17, where you see Esther say these words, if I perish, I perish. And she goes before the king. One person held the fate of the entire people in her hand. One person represented everyone. And if she failed, everyone would die. But if she succeeded, everyone would live. She would risk her life in the process, but she was responsible for saving the entire people. Every Jew that lived lit, owed her their life, not because of what they did, but because of what she did. Now, remember, as Jesus says in Luke 24, the entire story of Scripture is pointing towards him. It's all about him. And as we see in the story of Esther, uh, this truth communicated to us that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the one that intercedes on our behalf. Let me say that again just in case you were daydreaming a little bit. Uh, Jesus Christ is 
our advocate, and this story is here to remind us that our fate, the fate of our lives is in his hand, and Jesus represented and represents us on behalf of us to God, and he did it at the cost of his own life. Jesus, although he was living in royalty, did not consider his equality with God something that he would keep, but he gave it away and gave his life so that you and I could be good with God. He had the ultimate beauty. He had the ultimate glory. He left eternity, and nobody had to force him to do it. Now, here's where we're going today, uh, for the rest of today, uh, and it's something that's so vital that we understand. The basis of Christianity is that you and I have an advocate in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2 and 1 says it like this, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I want to say that again. We have, not had, not will have, we, present tense, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, the challenge to the story and understanding an advocate is twofold. One, I don't think we understand what an advocate is or does. And two, even if we did understand, I don't think that we think we need one. On one hand, we don't understand what it is. On the other hand, I don't think that we need it. Um, let me start by explaining what an advocate is and why the story is so dope. Now, most modern people struggle with the concept of understanding kings and kingdoms and golden scepters and all these different things uh, in the story. But essentially, when Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is our advocate, it's saying that he is our defense attorney. Jesus Christ is our uh, defense attorney. And when the Bible says that he's our advocate, that he means that he stands in our place and represents us. Now, let's just say you're on trial. What's the first thing that you would do? You would get yourself a lawyer. And you wouldn't just hire any lawyer. You wouldn't just go to page 12 on Google and find some dude with a toupee and a cheesy ad. You would research to see who is the best attorney because here's the truth behind all of this. Your attorney is basically you in, in court. There's some cases where you don't even have to show up to court. Your attorney represents you completely. And the success of your attorney is your success. The failure of your attorney is your failure. Their success or their failure is imputed to you. I remember when I first started practicing law, and uh, from time to time, uh, I would cover a case for my mother, who is uh, one of the preeminent attorneys in New York. Uh, she is bad. Please don't let the nice smile fool you. And I remember one time uh, representing her, um, one of her clients, and I showed up to court, and I was pretty brand new. I didn't even know like, where to stand in court. The bailiff was like, move over, and I was like, all right, over here. And the client the entire time was looking at me like, yo, I went from that to this. I went from an attorney who knew everything, who knew where to stand, who knew what to say, and you over here stuttering? Bro, here's what they knew. The success of their attorney would be their success. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie My Cousin Vinny. Anybody seen My Cousin Vinny? Uh, all the young millennials, shame on you. This is, <laughs> this is a, a prime movie. Uh, the language is a little bit objectionable, but it's a fantastic movie. Uh, here's what the case is about. Uh, my cousin Vinny, there were two guys who were charged with murder. Uh, one of the defendants decides to go with the state attorney. State attorney stands up and stutters his way through the opening argument and is doing a terrible job. The other guy, played by Ralph Malchio, is represented by his cousin, a one Vincent Gambini. Vincent Gambini stands up with this maroon suit, uh, like this maroon magician suit, 
and he cross-examines this dude and is just dragging this dude through the mud, and he's having a stellar performance. And at the end of the first cross-examination, the other defendant stands up and says, you're fired, I want this guy to represent me. Now, here's why he did that. It wasn't that the facts of the case changed from defendant to defendant. They were charged with the exact same thing, uh, with all the same facts. He knew that the representation of his attorney would represent him. His success hinged completely on his representative. When Scripture calls Jesus Christ our advocate, it's saying your success hinges completely on your advocate. Your, his success will be your success. His failure would be your failure. In law, there's this old adage that goes like this. Anyone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. Too many of us are representing ourselves in the courtroom of our own minds, and the end result of that is nothing but tension and anxiety. Uh, there's a scripture that I've really just come to understand this week, and it, it, I was reading through all of the stuff on what it means to have Jesus Christ as our advocate, and the scripture in Colossians 3 and 3 uh, was a, a really great reminder of what it means to have Jesus Christ as our advocate, and it says like this, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's explaining the nature of what it means to have an advocate. Your life your life. Think about your life. Think about the things that you've said. Think about the things that you've done. Here's what scripture is saying. Your life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. And here's what that means. His success is your success. That attorney speaks for you, represents you, stands on your behalf. You are the success of your advocate. In this case, is Christ. And the Greek word for this is, for, for hidden means krufo, which means to be safe or protected or hidden from view. So here's what this means. All of the ways in your life that you disappoint yourself, all of the ways that you fall short, all of the ways that you measure up, Scripture is saying that you and I are hidden. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You stand behind the representation of your attorney. He speaks for you. He advocates for you. He presents your case on your behalf. Now, imagine how you would feel, regardless of how uh, guilty or not guilty you were, imagine how you would feel if you were charged with a crime or you were being sued for something, and I handed you the business card of an attorney that has never lost a case. That would be a complete game changer. This is what Scripture is telling us, that we have an advocate in Christ. Now, here's the problem with all of this. Even as I was going through all of this, I, I thought about so many ways that day after day, I know I'm representing myself. Uh, I wouldn't say it like that. Uh, but as I really started to think through all of the different ways that I approach God and I approach other people, I started to see some ways that I might be being my own advocate. And remember, anybody who represents themselves has a fool for a client. First way you know that you're being your own advocate is this. Your prayer life is full of apologies and no gratitude. Most of the prayers that you pray on a day-to-day -day basis start with a litany of all of the ways that you don't measure up. And quite honestly, prayer is a drudgery for you. Because the entire time, all you're really doing is presenting your case why God should listen to the words that you're saying. So, again, there's a, there's a place for confession in our life. That's a necessary part of our life. But the reason prayer is so difficult for some people is because, really, all it is is a, is a, is a list of apologies, and there's no gratitude. There's no acceptance of the representation on your behalf. There's no actual uh, receiving of grace in your life. And all it is is really, God, I'm sorry for this, and would you please not mind to give me these things? Another way that you know that you're being your own advocate is that people know you, but they don't really know you. You keep your cards very close to your chest. 
Nobody really knows the real struggles in your life, and I'm most worried about the people that are very connected at this church. They know everybody. Um, they are active and involved, but people don't really know the real them because in their minds, they have to present a case to everybody. So I can't let you know what's really going on in my life. And this is not a, um, a suggestion to tell everybody everything about you, but there are some people, and I know this to be a fact, nobody really knows you. They know you, but they don't really know you. Because in your mind, you're rehearsing the case that you're, you want to present to God and to other people, and God forbid if people were to find out this or that about you, your case would, go, would be completely unraveled. Another way that you know you're being your own advocate is that when you're interpreting life's challenges and difficulties, it's always, you feel like it's God's punishment on you for not measuring up. One of the ways you can tell if this is true for you is when something good happens to someone else. Something good happens to someone else, and then the first thing you start to do is measure your case against their case. God, my case is better because I've done this, 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 and this. Their case is whack because they don't even do this, and you're allowing this in their life? Here's what you're saying internally. You're saying, Jesus, you're not my advocate, and you're definitely not their advocate. You're comparing case to case, and suffering and challenge in your life kill you over and over again because you're not able to, to accept them as something that is part of, uh, of life and God's process in your life, but rather you're taking them as punishment because you're just rehearsing the facts in your case. Well, God, maybe if I did this, and it all comes into a bargain. What you've done is you started to represent yourself. Now, I have never, in all of my times practicing law, I have never had a scenario in which my client, who was sitting there, volunteers to say something, and what they're going to say is something brilliant and necessary. Every single time, I'm always like, shh, no, no, don't say anything. I have this. We do not have the skill or the objectivity to represent ourselves. We do not have it, but yet and still, uh, so often, we do that. And this story is here to remind us that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He goes on our behalf. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, I know that this is all good news, and it sounds really great. Jesus Christ is my advocate. But if you've been thinking, I've also snuck in some bad news in there. I've also snuck in these notions that there's a judge, and there's judgment, all concepts that we don't like to think about. Uh, the story of Esther also foreshadows another truth, uh, something that we'd rather not look at, concepts like judge and judgment. And in Esther 3, we see a judgment signed that was a sentence of death over the people's lives. The Jewish people, Esther's own people that she would advocate for, were under a sentence. The king had spoken. There was a law signed, sealed, and delivered with his ring, and now they all faced a penalty. Now, this is by far one of the least pleasant things to talk about, a concept of judge and judgment, mainly because it just doesn't feel like the type of God that we want to be in relationship with. But I don't think you would want a God that is all grace, all love, all butterflies, and no judge, uh, and no justice. Here's why. Anger is how goodness responds to evil. You feel this every single time you see something that's unjust. You feel angry, as you should. And a God that didn't have, that wasn't uh, judging uh, things good and bad, and wasn't vowing to, to actually uh, set the world right in order, wouldn't be a God worthy of your worship. A few weeks ago, I saw something on social media that made me feel like, yeah, you know what? This is it. This is the time I need to get off of social media. Uh, I saw something that was just wrong, and it made me so, so, so mad. 
Uh, I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw a picture of potato salad with raisins in it. And I was, <laughs> I was boiling with anger and rage. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, um, anger is how goodness responds to evil. A couple of days ago, we've had yet another school shooting, uh, the 22nd one this year. And um, growing up, we had one Columbine. Now we have one Columbine a month. And what made me so, so mad and what makes me so, so mad right now is the empty thoughts and prayers given to us by politicians who can do something. They're not going to do anything but line their pockets with NRA money. They're not going to do nothing. They're going to talk about prayer, and it's too soon to talk about all these things. And all they're going to do is take more money from the NRA and continue it. Nothing is going to change. And that made me so mad when I thought about it. And if you think about it, it will make you mad. Anger is always how goodness responds to evil. And if you feel angry about things, then imagine how much more angry God would be at injustice. Anger is not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing when there is injustice. Now, even though, um, even though God should be angry and should, be, uh, uh, should carry out justice, uh, the problem still sinks a level below that when we think, or if we were to apply that, to your life. It's good that God, in theory, is going to judge the world, good and evil, but that's not going to come to me. I think that's for two reasons, why we have a difficult uh, time in thinking that we personally need an advocate. Uh, two quick reasons. One, I think that we judge everybody else based on their actions. We have this delusion where we judge ourselves based on our intentions. We judge ourselves based solely off of our intentions, but we judge other people completely by their actions. Years ago, my wife and I uh, got a co-op, and we redid the kitchen, and these beautiful, brand-new hardwood floors. And one night, I was doing the dishes, and I put the dishes in the sink, stopped it up, and ran some hot water in it to, to soak. Uh, really, I went to the couch and was eating Cheez-Its for a little bit. And uh, you ever get that sinking sensation that something really bad is happening that you've forgotten completely about? Like 15 minutes later, I got up and I was like, yo, the water is still running. I jumped off the couch hoping and praying that like, the stop came loose and that, that you know, the sink had not overrun. And as soon as I got to the kitchen, I was met by a flood of water. So much so that I, had to, I knew I had to tell my wife because like, all the towels in the entire house still wouldn't uh, soak up all of the, the, the water on the floor. And literally, the worst thing for hardwood floors is a puddle of water. Immediately, I thought to myself, you know what, Jordan? You're a good guy. You're a good dad. You do the dishes. I didn't see Jessica doing the dishes today. You're a good pastor. You give so much mental energy to everybody else that you, I mean, it's wrong. Like, of course you don't have anything left in the tank. You give it all away, bro. In my mind, I was going through all of my intentions, intention, 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 but let that have been somebody else that did that. If Jessica did that, it would be our 30th wedding anniversary. She'd be washing her hands up like, hey, 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 you know how you do. Make sure you turn the water off. And <laughs> I would never let her or anybody else live that down, and I think it's something that we all do. We judge ourselves based on our intentions. We judge other people based on their actions. 
We don't really look to see why people do other things, and we don't actually judge ourselves correctly. I think we don't judge ourselves correctly because in most cases, if we're being completely honest, uh, the standard that we have for ourselves is always just a little bit better than somebody that we don't respect or somebody that's not doing as good as we are, and we judge ourselves based on how other people are doing. But what if we change the benchmark? What if we change the standard? What if we judged ourselves not compared to how someone else was doing? What if we judged ourselves to the holiness of God? What if you got a complete and radical transformation of a benchmark of what justice and holiness and goodness actually look like? When I was a freshman in college, I was playing basketball, and I got to campus, and we were playing against, uh, you know, people from campus and intramurals, and regular Joe Schmoes that were playing basketball, and me and my teammates were crushing dudes, and I was feeling fantastic about life. Uh, I looked over to the corner, and there was a guy named Muggsy Bogues uh, that was lacing him up. Muggsy Bogues is from Baltimore, and he had played in the NBA, and in his offseason, he came to the college to get a little workout in. I looked at Muggsy Bugs and said, yo, this little dude's about to get this work. He don't know what he's about to get. And uh, as soon as Muggsy Bugs got in the court, he was playing defense on me. And I have never been around a stronger human being um, than Muggsy Bugs. His legs are like that thick. Uh, he's an angry, he has an anger complex. He's just a mean dude. And not only did I never score the entire game, he didn't even let me dribble the ball. <laughs> Halfway through the game, I kept on thinking about which injury am I going to fake to not be near this dude ever again. I thought I was good at basketball until I got a taste of an NBA player. You can watch the Cavs versus, you know what I'm saying, Boston, and you can talk all the junk you want to talk about LeBron, and he's this or this or that. If LeBron was to play against you, if you were to play against the worst player in the NBA, they would kill you the entire game, all game long. Listen, a lot of times when we judge our own righteousness, we're judging it based off of a JV standard when God's standard is actually the NBA. In 1 John 2 and 1, we get a taste of what the righteousness of God is. Uh, 1 John 1 and 5, rather. It says, this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. God is light, and there is no deceit. There is no selfishness. There is no abandonment. There is no faithlessness. There is no darkness in him at all. Imagine if you were to compare yourself against that. You would find yourself in need of an advocate. You would find yourself in need of someone to go on your behalf to make things right, because on your own, you could never measure up. On your own, you don't have the skill, the objectivity, or the case to win it on your own merits. And the good news of Scripture is that you don't need to be your own advocate, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. We have an advocate in Christ the righteous one. Now, his success is our success, as you see in the story of Esther. Her representation on behalf of the children of Israel was effective for the entire people of Israel, even though they didn't do anything. Scripture is telling us this um, for our peace and our peace of mind. Now, to all of the Christians in the room, um, most, about, most of us, when we think about Christ's work for us, uh, you think about, well, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. Or you might think about one day in the future, Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things good. But right now, I'm kind of on my own. Here's the beauty of what it means to have an advocate in Christ. It means that right now, in the present tense, Jesus Christ intercedes for you. There's a couple of scriptures I want to highlight. And maybe the most important thing that Christ is doing in your life 
is happening right now. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Present tense. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of a true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Romans 8 and 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, even more than him dying, has been raised, and he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Full disclosure, I got a D in New Testament Greek, but I do know enough about this to say this with full confidence. The word intercedes here is in the present active tense. Present active tense, meaning that right now, presently and active in your life is the intercession of Christ. At this moment, and you do not need to represent yourself because you have an advocate in Christ right this second. Now, most of us still feel this pressure to represent ourselves and I think many of that, much of that comes from the fact that we don't really understand the type of advocate that Jesus Christ is. So uh, back in the day when I was an attorney in court, I basically knew that my client's case most of the time really wasn't the strongest. And I knew that the case really depended on how creative I could be as an attorney. So as soon as the attorney would say something, I would say, Judge, that's, that's ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. It's like, counsel, he just said his name. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, keep going. That's ridiculous, Your Honor. That is absolutely ridiculous. And I kind of thought that the way that Jesus represented me was the way I represented clients, either relying on persuading the judge or begging for mercy. And I kind of had this feeling that Jesus every single day would pick up my file, this manila folder with the word rice on it, and every day he'd be like, Your Honor, all right, okay, so he said, he said he would never do this again, and he did, okay, all right, and he said he was going to start doing this, and he hasn't started doing it yet, but... Give him like two more days, and I'm pretty sure this time is going to be the time. And I was filled with so much anxiety because I'm like, yeah, well, how long could he keep that up? How long could, would he tolerate me if all it was was begging for mercy day after day after day after day, recounting my failures and recounting how many ways I didn't measure up? If this is the type of advocacy, then pretty soon Jesus is going to get really tired of me and say, now look, dude. All right, I can't take this case no more. I I mean, listen, this is just too much of a drain. There's other people who are working harder than you, and I'd much rather take their case than I would rather take yours. So deep down inside, I was filled with this low-level fear that every single day Jesus is relitigating my case. That is not the advocacy that Jesus gives gives to us. When the Bible tells us that he is our advocate, it is not saying he is going to the, the seat begging for mercy or trying to manipulate the case, trying to give the judge a good one-liner. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It says something completely different and significantly better than this. In Hebrews 7:27, please get this. It says, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices every single day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. And essentially what happens in this uh, transaction, if you will, is that Jesus Christ is not coming to the throne room presenting a new argument every single day. He's coming with the satisfaction of judgment. 
When Jesus Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane, he and the Father were going through the terms of the agreement. Father, you demand justice, you're going to get it. What are the terms? Separation between me and you? My death on the cross? That's pretty steep. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as Jesus Christ walked up that hill, carried his cross, breathed his last breaths, he submitted to God the final payment. And he tells God in the scripture, Father, it is finished. The terms of the agreement have been satisfied. The debt is now discharged, canceled, forever stricken. And when the accuser of the brethren comes to present the case against you, Jesus is not presenting a new argument begging for mercy. He's rather showing up with this sign uh, recorded in, the, in the, record, uh, the, the record hall, the satisfaction of judgment once paid forevermore. Your hope. Yes, that's pretty good news. When Jesus was on the cross and he said those words, it is finished, and submitted his final breaths, he therefore canceled, satisfied, discharged you and me forevermore. And Jesus Christ is the only one worthy and capable of being our advocate because he's the only one that can present exhibits A and B, the nail-pierced hands, exhibit C, the nail-pierced side. And he could show to the judge not a new argument, but rather, God, you want mercy? I mean, you want justice? Great, you've already gotten it. Now, it would be a deep joy to me. Uh, I don't pretend that in a room this size, Everybody has placed their faith in Christ, or everybody has actually received what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus, not as your own advocate where you're trying to measure up on your own, but rather where you receive the advocacy of Jesus. So often I talk to people, and they just say, well, I'm not ready yet. Uh, you know, I just got some more stuff I'm trying to work out in my life, and you know, in a couple of weeks, I would have gotten to the point to where I would be worthy of this. And here's the truth about Christianity. You'll never be worthy. And the longer you spend being your own advocate, you will spend more and more time spinning your tires and in frustration. For us, how do we retain the services of Jesus Christ? Uh, Jesus, when he first started to preach, he told everybody to repent, to turn from their ways and to look to him, to believe, and to place their faith in him. Now, that's a complex uh, thing. I'm not, I don't pretend to make that to be the easiest thing to understand, but what I do know is this. If you decide to turn your life into the hands of the king, the lawyer who has never lost a case. It is not your performance. It is not your diligence. It is not your will. It is not your grit that matters, but rather the goodness, the mercy, the perseverance, the diligence, the satisfaction of Jesus. For those of you in this room who are Christians and you place your faith in Christ uh, tomorrow, probably not even tomorrow, maybe today, this afternoon, you will feel many reasons why you should start to feel guilty about one thing or another, and you're going to feel the temptation to be your own advocate again. You're going to feel the temptation to constantly rehearse all the good that you have done or the bad things that you have done as well. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get off that treadmill, and I want you to do something that Scripture calls us to do, uh, which is called meditation. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Mike preached a sermon. My boy, Mike Kelsey, preached a sermon on the importance of meditating on Scripture and what that does to us to free us and quite honestly, you and I will never be able to taste the goodness of Christ as our advocate unless we have the words of God hidden in our hearts. David, in one of the Psalms, said, Thy words have I hid in, your heart, in my heart so that I might not sin against you. There's a couple of scriptures that I would love for you to meditate on, to memorize, to rehearse, to mumble, to speak over and over again to yourself and to other people. Every time you feel guilty and every time you want to start beating yourself up, I want you to memorize these two scriptures uh, the first one comes in Psalm 103.12. It 
that says this, as far as, as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The east and the west do not touch each other. And the second scripture I want you to remember is this, 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The next time you find yourself beating yourself up, I want you to, say, I want you to focus on this. Lord, I confess my sins to you, and you are faithful, you are righteous. You will both forgive me of my sins, and you will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I want you to meditate on these two scriptures, and I want you to receive the advocacy of Jesus on your behalf. Now, the second thing is something we're going to do right now, and we do it uh, most Sundays, and it's called communion. Uh, communion is a ritual, a sacrament that Jesus has given us to remember him. It's a thing that we can do tangibly with our hands and our feet to take in, to receive again who Jesus is to us. And Jesus gave his disciples this word of instruction before they took communion. He simply told them to remember me. Throughout the course of the week, we can go through so many things where we would forget who he is in our lives. And here's what I want you to do today as you come to receive the communion elements. I want you to remember Christ, our advocate, the one who took the bread and broke it and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And this is my blood, which has been poured out for you for the remission of all your sins. To receive this satisfaction of judgment on your behalf, canceling, discharging you. And I want your prayer to be a prayer of gratitude. I don't want you to come beating yourself up, rehearsing your case to yourself. I want you to come and to receive gratefully what Christ has done for us. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, um, I'm so grateful that I don't have to represent myself because uh, I've lost that case a thousand times already. I'm grateful that I get to place my hands, my life in your hands. And Lord, would you teach me what it means to place my trust in you? Would you teach me what it means to place my faith in you? Would you teach me what it means to rest in you, my advocate? God, when I'm tempted to speak out for myself, I pray that I would look up to you. Bless us in this time, Lord. Allow us to receive you and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.